Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. So today we continue our our series AD 30, and I've entitled our message, The Job. And we're getting to that point in Jesus' life and ministry where he's just about ready to go to the cross, so it coincides well with Easter. Leith Anderson is one of the most prominent evangelical leaders in North America over the last 30 years, tells an incredible story about the first missionaries to Congo in Africa. He said there were five of us traveling across the Sahel of Africa, just south of the Sahara Desert. We'd start, started out in Niger. We were working our way towards, the, uh, towards Mali. We were traveling through Burkina Faso in a Toyota Land Cruiser. The air conditioning system was broken. Temperature outside is 120 degrees. It was dusty. The windows were open. Hard to carry on a conversation. Three people jammed in the back and three of us in the front. The driver, our guide, Judy Anderson, the wife of the director for West Africa for World Relief, and me. You could only talk to the person right next to you because of the road noise. I was seated next to Judy, listening to a story that made the whole trip worthwhile. Judy said she had grown up as the daughter of missionaries from the Evangelical Covenant Church in the old Congo. And when she was a little girl, there was a celebration held for the 100th anniversary of the coming of Christian missionaries to that part of Congo. She said that in typical African fashion, it was an all-day event. Started at sunrise, went all the way until sunset. Food, music, speeches, parties. It was a great time of celebration. And near the end of the day, when it was almost dark and it was time for everyone to go home, a very old man asked if he could come and speak to the crowd. When he came up, he said, there's something I know that no one else knows, and I'm soon going to die. If I don't tell you, then I will take this secret to the grave with me. A hundred years ago, when missionaries first came to our people, we had never heard of their God or of their book or seen anyone who had looked anything like them. Our people didn't know whether to believe what they had to say or not. So our leaders got together and they conspired to come up with a test to find out the credibility of these newcomers and their Christian faith. The test was that we would poison one of them and see how they all reacted. What ensued was one day a little girl got sick. Her parents thought it was an ordinary illness, but nothing they could do, nothing in the missionary medical book that they brought along seemed to cover this situation. Their daughter, just a child, actually a preschooler, got sicker and sicker and sicker, and she died. They had poisoned her to see how mom and dad, the missionaries, would react. Here they thought they had come to establish a community. They started out by establishing a cemetery. A few weeks later, a husband and another family got sick. Now they're poisoning him. It was a similar sickness. He just got sicker and sicker, and he died. Then the wife of the third couple, they poisoned her and another child until this old man explained how they all died. His people watched how each missionary died and decided as a result the message must be true. And it was then 
the old man said, after they had poisoned multiple families of missionaries, that they decided to follow Jesus. What if the world hasn't changed? What if people who are outside of faith need to see more than orthodoxy, more than paper doctrines, sometimes for the world around us that's simply not enough? What if faith has to be fleshed out like in those missionaries willing to die to bring their faith to others? What if faith has to be fleshed out to be believed and to be followed? What if it takes sacrifice like that, service like that, to move the mind to the truth of Jesus? And if that's true, if that's true, who is being moved toward Jesus through us? This theme is fleshed out beautifully in our text today. Jesus is heading towards the cross. The disciples are simply not ready for what is to come. Jesus has been the best theological ride along in history. He shows up, miracles happen. He takes the stage, every show is standing room only. He comes to town, the hotels are booked, the restaurants are booked, the rent the camels are booked. The five loaves and two fish lunch special is no longer on special. Used to be five for a denarii, not anymore. Jesus is the best ticket in Galilee. But that's the problem. That's how his disciples viewed him as well. And it wouldn't always be this way. People who followed Jesus were spoiled by the popularity and they benefited from it. They were becoming famous as well. It's, hey, there's Jesus and there's the 12. And those kinds of disciples who are spoiled by the popularity and the position alongside Jesus that they have are not prepared for three months from now. They're not prepared for a week and a half from now. And Jesus knows that. He's going to leave the planet. He's going to leave a movement in the hands of the narcissistic 12. And so we have Matthew chapter 20. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. It's on page 17 of your New Testament. If you have a Bible near you, in the pew there, you're going to go about three quarters of the way through. The numbers are going to start over with the New Testament. It's on page 17, the book of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, and this story is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, incidentally. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And right next to that story, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. What he meant is, are you able to go through the experience I'm going to go through? 
He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's uh, for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man, just as I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Four simple points as we walk through this passage. First, the Jesus path, the Jesus way. To Jesus, the job is service and sacrifice. Now Matthew, and gospel writers do this, he combines several short stories. And this theme actually begins before what we read where he says the last shall be first, the first shall be last. So this theme of servanthood and getting ahead in a different way in the kingdom than in the world has already started earlier in this chapter. Matthew's combined several short stories to make a point, but he also gives us a couple of summary statements within Matthew 20 to help us know that we're on to what the author's intent is. There's no doubt about what the author is trying to share. And it begins with this path that Jesus would pave as he describes to the 12 who are not thinking about service and sacrifice at all, what is in front of him? Because as the leader goes, so go the 12. And so he wants them to understand what's in front of him. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, capital city, the temple's there. The religious elite are there. They're headquartered there. Many of them live in Jericho, about 17 miles away. We're going to Jerusalem. There, there is going to be a trial by the religious leaders. After that trial, I'm gonna be condemned to death. There'll be a death sentence. It's gonna be for blasphemy. Because Israel doesn't have the power of the sword, then I'm gonna be turned over to Gentile authorities or to Rome, in this case to Pilate, because of this transfer of jurisdiction. And then I'm gonna be scourged which was sort of a preview of a crucifixion, then I'm going to be crucified, a punishment that could only happen to slaves and outsiders. And on the third day, I'm going to be risen again. Now, to the average person, this kind of looks like a death wish because Jesus is telling his disciples ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. So if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking, in light of what I want out of this Jesus situation... Let's skip the whole Jerusalem field trip. You know, we know we've got these three or four religious holidays, but surely God will forgive you if you don't go to Jerusalem if you know you're going to die. I mean, of course we don't have to go to this one. Galilee's beautiful this time of year. Even better, missions trip. We've done that before. This trip makes no sense. And it didn't. And it doesn't. Unless... It's the Jesus way, unless it's the Jesus path, and he has to do it because it's who he is. 
It's what the world needs. We needed a sacrifice for sin. All of salvation history has looked forward to this point since the fall. We needed a resurrected Savior victorious over sin and death. And also, not just do we need those things for our personal salvation, in that sacrifice, in what Jesus did, we have this model, this example to follow. He was the miracle worker, if you believed in him. If you didn't believe in him, he was still the magic man. He was the one who walked on water. Nature bowed to him. Demons bowed to him. Sickness bowed to him. Death bowed to him. But in the end, this Jesus, who has proven over three years that he can do anything he wants, resisted the temptation to miracle his way out of it. And he took the cross. And he told him ahead of time, I'm gonna take the cross and I'm gonna die for you. He served humanity so that we could have salvation. That's the Jesus path. But then right away you've got this contrasted with the disciples path, which is position and prosperity. This is an embarrassing story for the sons of Zebedee. In fact, I love this because there's a human side to the Bible which we often sort of dismiss because we're thinking, well, God wrote it. But I want you to just think about a couple of things as God wrote it. Matthew spares these two a bit of embarrassment. He does not name them. He puts the blame on mama. Mark nails them. They, they must not have loved each other in the 12 that well. Mark just nails them. James and John doesn't mention mama at all. Dr. Luke, trying to be above all of this fray, trying to be a little more professional, leaves this story out entirely. Isn't that kind of interesting? John, who's one of the two who comes with this narcissistic question, writes a gospel and seemed to forget about the whole story entirely. There's nothing about this in John's gospel. I wonder why. And then he calls himself also the one who Jesus loved. He's the one who Jesus loved and he leaves out the bad stuff about himself. It's, it's just kind of funny. Forgive me. Jesus has just predicted his own demise and here comes helicopter mom in AD 30. She's hovering over their little futures. They're in their 20s probably. Never sort of broke away from mama. She's been in the family trophy room that week. She sees John, his 12th place trophy in Greco-Roman wrestling in the Capernaum Classic. And then there's little James with his participation awards. She wants to add a little glitter to that wall, kind of the champion room. Well, Jesus is the king. He's proven that. He's Messiah. He's the son of God as well. He's talking about this kingdom. They're assuming, she's assuming like everyone else at that point, that it's going to be a restoration of Israel to political power. Israel would overthrow Rome. Jesus is going to lead armies, and in that sort of revolution against Rome, he's gonna have some political appointees. He's gonna need a cabinet. He's gonna need a defense secretary. He's gonna need a secretary of state to deal with all these foreign powers once Israel is restored again. And she's thinking, can it be my boys, James and John? I mean, the wall's a little bare, and they seem to be really well-liked. I mean, John is the one who Jesus loves. He's Jesus' little pet. Jesus. 
can you grant that one of my sons, little Jimmy maybe, could sit on your right and the other one, Johnny, can sit on your left when this all comes to fruition? And in her mind, she's got that photo already on the mantle. Jesus was not particularly happy about that request. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Now he's just, we're assuming he's talking to the boys, not to mom. We are able. He said, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, that's not mine to give. It's for those to whom it's been prepared by my father. And at this point, the 10 have evidently begun to overhear the conversations, like why do we got their mom here? And they overhear what's going on, and they are ticked off. This is really embarrassing. I love how the gospel writers don't spare us the reality of what they were actually like, and I think that really helps us because we're not that much different, are we? See, we're fully capable of looking at Jesus' incredible abilities and making it about me. I know Jesus, therefore I want. Let's put these powers to work. I know a worthy cause and it's got a name on it, me. And if I'm willing to follow Jesus and I know him and he's God, I expect something in return. Preferably in this lifetime. My life should be easier than other people's lives because I know God. And intuitively, as much as we know this isn't true, we all come into the Christian faith thinking I'm connected to God, things are gonna be better for me. We just can't help ourselves. So you've got the Jesus path, sacrifice and service, the disciples path, they want position, they want prosperity, they wanna get ahead. Jesus is ready to go to the cross in days and you've got the narcissistic 12, or at least two. And the others weren't necessarily indignant because of the request. They might have just been indignant because they got there first. And then you have this inevitable clash of values and a new definition of greatness. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, you're acting just like the world around you. It's not this way among you. It's not going to be this way in the new kingdom. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man. It's not my way. I gave you a different example. Just as the son of man did not come to be served I didn't make it about me, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I didn't come into the world to do this, Jesus said, so why would you think as my followers that it's gonna be all about you? It wasn't all about me. Well, this is not a group that's ready for the absence of Jesus. They wanted to use Jesus for personal advancement. And Jesus knows, and we no, intuitively, that will not touch the hearts of the world that Jesus is going to die for in a matter of days. Jesus tells them that. 
You're acting just like the Gentile world. That's what the world around us is like. It's just people trying to get into positions of power and authority so other people have to do what they ask. That's what you're asking of me. He says, that's not greatness. It might be greatness in the world, but it's not greatness in the kingdom. We're gonna turn those values upside down. Greatness in the kingdom is not power and authority. It's putting yourself in a position to love and serve and sacrifice for others because then they'll know what we're talking about is real and true just like those missionaries who went to the Congo and one after another were poisoned to death and stayed faithfully there because the message was more important than their own lives. Jesus knew that when you show the world that, it is transformative. The Jesus path of service and sacrifice had to prevail Even God's son chose to serve, chose to die, chose to sacrifice. The kingdom of God, the church, could never be built on James and John and Mama's view of Jesus. Rather, the church needs people who, like Jesus, serve others. We're not only people who know the right answers to the question, who is God and who is the true God? We're not only intellectual followers of the true God. We're not only able to debate philosophy and theology and a few things in geology and archaeology. We are also changed so that the world can see that those other things are a reality and are the truth. We put others first. We have upside-down values. We don't simply walk away from needs and people and problems because they're inconveniences for us. We get dirty. We get involved. We roll up our sleeves. We serve. Our leader died for us, and we, in turn, live for others because his death was sacrifice and service, and our lives are to be sacrifice and service. And then, finally, the application you got this very interesting sort of tag-along story at the end of this. And, and this is something you just need to know the gospel writers will sometimes do. Many times in the gospels, and you've seen it already in Matthew chapter 20, a couple of times, there will be a summary statement. The last will be first. If you want to get ahead, you need to be a servant to others. Those are summary statements that Jesus made. There is no summary statement in this last little story. It's just put there. And sometimes gospel writers would do that, and they're just going to assume that when we read it, we see where it is and we get it. They don't always say, by the way, I've added this little story about the blind men as an application to what Jesus just said. They, they put it right there, and they assume we're smart enough to figure it out. Okay, So they'll do that. They're, the stories are in order for a reason. They're thematically connected, and they just assume we get that. And that's the application that Matthew is making here. That there's this interruption on the path to the cross. Right before the Palm Sunday story, right before Jesus is walking into Jerusalem to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. So they're headed to Jerusalem. It's the next step on the journey. We're in the ninth inning. We're in the fourth quarter. We're in the second half, whatever. Salvation history has waited for this moment since Eve talked Adam into some bad fruit decisions. Thank you for that generous laughter. God and the apostles blame Adam? I don't. Anyway, Jesus needs to be hyper-focused. It's time to set aside time-consuming, needy people and do some really important God stuff. You know? Big crowds there. 
wanting to hear the message. They're on the edge of Jericho. Earlier, we didn't teach on this, but earlier as they came into Jericho, that's when you had Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Remember Sunday school? Okay, Zacchaeus, the little guy, climbed up in the tree to see Jesus. That was on the way into Jerusalem. Now we're leaving Jerusalem. So we're on the other side of Jerusalem. We're on the west side. We're about ready to get on the road that goes to Jerusalem from Jericho. I'm sorry, in the edge of Jericho. People are thronging Jesus on every side. People are probably making their way to Passover already. And that's a good place for a couple of blind beggars to be because in that situation, a lot of the priests who served in Jerusalem actually lived in Jericho. So they're there on the road to Jerusalem on the edge of Jericho. Two blind men, Bartimaeus and his friend, beggars, probably sat in that spot every day. And they hear this commotion, and they're used to the feasts in Jerusalem. They're used to being a lot more people that time of year. They hear the commotion. They learn it's Jesus. Now, they've heard about Jesus before. Jesus come in and through there a dozen times or so. They know about Jesus. They've heard of him. Many believe he's the Messiah. They identify him that way. They also call him Lord. They've heard the rumors. I mean, we've heard this guy heals lepers. We've heard this guy, people who can't walk, they can walk. We've even heard a couple of stories about people who are dead. In fact, three months ago, just in Bethany, we heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. So they, they hear about Jesus and hope springs alive in their beings. And they're thinking, if anybody can change our fate, it is Jesus. And so they start shouting. They don't care that Jesus is, you know, in this special teaching session. And they start letting it go. Son of David, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd tells them to shut it down, dudes, okay? This is important stuff. Jesus is doing God stuff here, okay? Like, quiet down. They were blind, so they probably couldn't see that. Never mind. They wouldn't stop. Pretty sure the Greek verb there is in the imperfect tense, which means they wouldn't stop. They kept shouting. They kept shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Well, they weren't going to be silenced, and the crowd's moving pretty slow along with Jesus. They, they weren't going to shut it down, so Jesus stopped and he had compassion on them. And he says to them, you know, they're ushered to the front where Jesus is, and the great question, Jesus isn't always really deep. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? We wanna see! And he healed them, and they followed him. Now what's interesting is there is a theological issue behind this that you just would know if you understand the culture of that day, and, and that is this. Anybody who's got a sickness in the first century AD is viewed as being punished by God. So there was sort of compassion on people like that, but then not really. It's kind of like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to give you a few denarii here, but clearly God is pretty angry with you or you wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Remember when Jesus and his disciples came upon a guy, I believe he was lame, and they said, okay, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? That was normal theology in that era. Who sinned, this man or his parents? So all these people, I mean, they're around the religious center and they're thinking, okay, these blind dudes must have really offended God or else they wouldn't be in this situation. So there wasn't a, as much compassion as you would expect for people who had great difficulty in life. They're viewed as being punished by God. They're not a typical object of compassion. 
People might have given to them because they were commanded to and they get reward in heaven, but they didn't necessarily feel what you or I would feel for somebody who's really suffering. And Jesus, on the road to the cross, takes the time to change the lives of two people who would not have mattered in that culture and would have been viewed as being punished by God because Jesus is a servant. And that's why Matthew puts the story here to be an application to what Jesus has said. We stop for the needs of others. Just a couple applications here. Are you still on the disciples' path? You know, we all want benefits from knowing Jesus. I do. I, I, want, I want that to pay off. It's not wrong. It's not all wrong. One of the reasons I followed Jesus was forgiveness of sins, and there was a lot to forgive, and there still is. That's not wrong. That's a benefit. One of the reasons I followed Jesus is heaven is much better than the alternative. That's a benefit. It's not wrong. There are things about our faith where we get benefits from knowing Jesus, from following and knowing the truth. There there certainly are things that help us. But we're also expected to be transformed into the kind of disciples that Jesus wants. There's a character transformation that hadn't happened yet in the 12. And that was the concern that Jesus had about the 12. He's leaving. The whole future of the kingdom is in the hands of these dudes who just want their lives to be better because of Jesus. Again, as I say often, we signed up to a movement of martyrs. Thank God it doesn't happen to us for the most part. There are people around the world where it is happening to them, even today. But you signed up for a movement that's early history was full of martyrs, people killed for their faith. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. You wanna follow me? Take up your own cross. In other words, I'm gonna die for you, you might die for me. That's what we joined. No, just because it doesn't happen doesn't mean that kind of commitment is not what Jesus wants. That's the Jesus way. That's getting off the disciples' path, getting on the Jesus path. Second, is your faith mostly intellectual or is it practical? What I mean by that is this. Jesus knew that an intellectual faith alone would not change the world. He knew that the disciples needed to be transformed. And I, and I think sometimes, you know, I, I gotta be honest. I mean, I, I follow Jesus not because of the example of other Christians. I'm, I'm sort of an intellectual Christian. It's my motivation for being a Christian is what I mean by that. That's what gets me. I believe something must be true. I believe this is it. That's why I follow Jesus. Regardless of everything else, that's why I follow Jesus. But we're not just called to believe the right things. We're called to action. Sacrifice and service are not theological issues. They were the result of theological issues. And either extreme in this way is is a problem. One of the problems with the social gospel is this. You can kind of have a very liberal view of scripture, say, no, Jesus isn't the son of God. He didn't die for us. There really is no atonement. Miracles aren't real. They're myths and fables. But still, we're going to do all kinds of things in Jesus' name to change the world. I don't get that. If Jesus is a fraud, I'm gonna watch more football. I am not gonna be here talking to you. 
So the social gospel makes no sense. But neither does the other extreme where we just get this right and we don't care about the world around us. There's a balance. Our actions, our sacrifice, our service are the result of theological issues. Jesus is God and the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, I want to obey him. Therefore, I want to emulate him. Therefore, I want to share his values. The world needs to see and hear both truth first, but also action that's a result of truth. And it might be the action that's a result of truth that has the greatest impact to open hearts to the truth. And finally, how's your serve? How's your serve? On most Fridays, I play tennis with somebody in this audience who I will protect their identity. But David McPhail and I get together on Friday and we play tennis, and, and David is a little older than me. In fact, maybe a half a generation. And that's not a criticism, that's just math. So he's about a half a generation older than me, and, and theoretically he's a little more broken down than me, I'll just say that, but he kicks my butt every Friday. It's just humiliation I sign up for every Friday. And I need a little cardio. Some would say I need a lot of cardio. But what happens is we get together, we play tennis, but we, we really don't play tennis. We, we hit the ball back and forth. And we rally and we play in that sense, but we never keep score. We never serve. We never serve. We just hit the ball. But if you never serve, you never really score. So we're never really playing tennis. Sometimes we can be part of the Christian family and we can kind of be around church and we're hitting the ball back and forth and we're kind of playing around and we're talking a little bit when we get a little out of breath. But if, you're, if, if serving gets into part of your DNA, if serving gets into part of your game, you're not playing Christianity. You just have a few correct theological beliefs and that's good but it can't stop there. Service is central to who we are. And there's some things about service that, that really aren't ideal. Like, often it's kind of behind the scenes and nobody knows you're really doing it. How many of you have seen the movie The Monuments Men? Okay. Can we get movie night on the church calendar for, for everybody? All right, there's a lot of movies I've watched I really can't recommend, too much violence, whatever, but that one, for crying out loud, you all should know that movie, all right. All right, well, that's gonna be in our strategic plan. In the film, The Monuments Men, a woman named Claire Simone lives a very ordinary life in Paris under the oppressive Nazi regime. She's an art enthusiast who's forced to facilitate the pillaging of the great works of art of Paris as the Nazis are taking them, stealing them. But despite the seeming hopelessness of her situation, Claire carefully catalogs each piece of art. She marks it with a small colored sticker, a seal you could say. She kept this catalog without knowing whether it would ever be used or whether it would just be a dusty record or if it would be confiscated and destroyed and she might be killed for it. She kept meticulous records without any hope that it would come to anything, not until James Granger, who's played by Matt Damon, shows up asking about these pieces of art Dee Dee knows Matt Damon's mom. 
interesting little tidbit. Anyway, not until James shows up asking about these pieces of art does an opportunity arise for her risky bookkeeping to pay off. Up to that point, during the majority of her record keeping, she had no idea that the monuments men would come along and try to restore these great works of art and get them back from the Nazis. She had no idea that anyone else cared. She was one woman in a city occupied by one of the most powerful militaries on the planet. She was one woman battling against the whole Nazi-engineered system, and for all the time before James Granger arrived, she kept working subversively and systematically without any assurance that her work would ever be put to use. In a similar way, Christians live in territory occupied by the enemy. It's tempting to give up hope that our work for Jesus, our small deeds of compassion and kindness, our faithfulness to our families and jobs and churches and people around us will come to anything. But unlike Claire, Christians have an assurance of hope. Christ's resurrection guarantees our future. Our service to Christ may feel insignificant. Yet Claire exhibits for Christians an inspiring example of how to live faithfully in enemy-occupied territory. She didn't know that anyone would ever use this, and that's the way it is when we serve. We're gonna do it quietly. We're gonna do it behind the scenes. But we have to believe that because it's who we are, because of who Jesus is, there is a payoff in the end. It's who we are. Two things I wanna leave with you. When we need volunteers, that's what this is about. We want to grow a better Bethany. That means when we need help, it's not just for everybody else to step forward. It's for all of us to engage. And there are things sometimes that might really fit in your gifting, and that's great. We want to serve in our gifting. Sometimes there's other things where it just mean, kind of means everybody's you know, all hands on deck. We just need help. And maybe more obscurely, personally, when we're trying to reach the world around us, when you're trying to reach the people around you, do you serve them? Are you available to them? Do they know that you care about them and you will put their priorities above your own at times? Because that is the voice of the gospel to the people around you. As we pray, we're going to enter a time of communion. The worship team's going to come up here. The communion stewards will uh, as well. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray that you would help us to follow the Jesus path. And we recognize we're all kind of like the 12, maybe not as embarrassing as James and John were at that point. But we're all in this to some degree because of the benefits. And you want us to be Christ followers willing to die for the cause. And so there's a transformation that just needs to happen within us. And I pray that you would do that. That we'd be the kind of people that you can depend on to build your kingdom through your power in your absence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.